Well, welcome everyone. I think we'll get started. Thank you for joining us today. My name is Jillian McConnell, and I'm the Knowledge Mobilization Lead and Knowledge Broker with Brain Exchange. And the webinar we're proud to be hosting today is part of a knowledge dissemination series offered in partnership by the Brain Exchange and the Alzheimer's Society of Canada, as well as with the Canadian Consortium on Neurodegeneration and Aging, also known as the CCNA. So hang in there if you've heard this before, but in case we do have any new participants on the line, I want to just provide a quick review to ensure that everyone is comfortable with the technology. The audio is provided over the phone, which means if you're hearing my voice, you are all set to go. The visuals or the slides are provided by the online link that you should have received in your connection details and your confirmation, so that way you can watch the slides as our presenter speaks. On the bottom left of your screen, you'll see a little blue bubble, and if you move your cursor or your mouse over it, um, you will see a chat with a presenter pop-up. If you click on that, the chat, chat, chat pod should appear, and that's how you can communicate with me during the event as well as with the presenter. I do want to note that um, only I can see uh, your notes in the chat pod, not your fellow participants, and that's also where you can send your questions during the Q&A portion. So as per usual, all of the lines have been muted, and that just helps us minimize background noise or private conversations, codes going off, dogs barking. Um, if you do need to ask a question or have a concern during the actual webinar, then please use the chat bot as we, of course, won't be able to hear you. So for the purpose of today, those are the only features you need to be familiar with. The webinar is scheduled to be 60 minutes in length, and our presenter will speak for about 40 minutes or so, and then we'll have our remaining time together at the end for some Q&A and discussion. I do ask that you refrain from asking questions in the chat pod until the end of the presentation portion, unless, of course, it's technology-related, and I'll do my best to help you out as quickly as I can. Okay, so now that the technical aspects have been taken care of, it's my pleasure to introduce our topic and our presenter. So the title of today's session is Dementia-Friendly Communities from a Care Partner Perspective, and it features our presenter, Dr. Marjorie Silverman. Dr. Silverman is an associate professor in the School of Social Work at the University of Ottawa, and prior to joining the U of O, she worked for 10 years in clinical practice in Montreal. She currently works on topics related to older adults and family care from a critical social gerontology perspective, and has published articles in journals such as Dementia, Journal of Aging Studies, Journal of Gerontological Social Work, International Journal of Care and Caring, and Qualitative Social Work. So we're very pleased and honored to have Dr. Silverman with us today. And on behalf of all the participants on the line, um, Dr. Silverman, we say welcome and turn the floor over to you. Thank you very much, Jillian. And good afternoon, everyone. Thank you very much for being here. Thank you also to the Alzheimer's Society of Canada for the invitation to do this webinar. I also want to thank the Alzheimer's Society of Canada for the funding that made possible my research on dementia-friendly communities, uh, which I'll give more detail about in a few minutes. Um, just a few words about my background, although Jillian just gave a lovely introduction. I've been professor at the University of Ottawa since 2013, and my research and teaching focuses on gerontology and family care. Um, prior to obtaining this faculty position, I worked in the field of gerontological social work as well as as a psychotherapist, and I did my PhD at McGill in the School of Social Work. Today, I will be talking to you about the findings from a research project that I'm currently wrapping up. I will talk for about uh, 40 minutes, leaving 20 minutes for your questions, and I'll begin by situating the concept of dementia-friendly communities. 
um, describing my research project, reviewing its main findings, suggesting avenues for future research, and finally, providing recommendations regarding the development of dementia-friendly communities from a care partner perspective. The concept of dementia-friendly communities emerged from the concept of age-friendly communities, um, which is a movement that gained enormous traction around the world and for which um, the World Health Organization has developed guidelines. Dementia-friendly communities, however, are a newer concept, at least in Canada, um, and are only beginning to emerge in Canada. There are currently a number of municipalities in various parts of our country that are trying to implement grassroots dementia-friendly community programs with the goal of supporting people with dementia and their care partners in their social and built environment. Dementia-friendly communities challenge us to put the concepts of neighborhoods, homes, and communities into a dynamic interaction. And when I'm talking about the concept of neighborhood, um, I'm referring to the physical boundaries of a geographic space. But the concept of community has no boundaries. And we'll be looking at both of these concepts because when someone with dementia is living at home, that home is part of a much larger neighborhood and community. So in what ways can the built and social aspects of the neighborhood and community support people with dementia and their care partners? How and where are people with dementia and their care partners living their daily lives? And how is the environment facilitating that? The project I will be telling you about today was funded by an Alzheimer's Society of Canada Faskin Martineau New Investigator Grant. The project began in 2015 and is currently in its final few months of funding. I'm the principal investigator and Elaine Wiersma at Lakehead University is the co-investigator. The research was also linked to a parallel UK-Swedish project called Our People, Our Places, which was part of a neighborhoods and dementia research program funded by two funding bodies in the United Kingdom. The main question guiding my project was, what are the everyday experiences of place, space, and neighborhood of care partners of people with dementia? And throughout this presentation, I'll just note that I use the term care partner to refer to family or friend carers who are supporting someone with dementia on a regular basis. So we were curious to know how these care partners engaged with the physical, social, even emotional elements of their neighborhood. Where and how did they spend their time um, and had this changed since they started assuming care? And the specific aims of the project were to build understanding about how care partners of someone with dementia perceive, experience, and engage with all those aspects of their neighborhood, um, to expand the focus of multidisciplinary intervention for care partners to include not only the home, but the larger spatial, social, and built context, and finally, to contribute understanding of what would constitute a dementia-friendly neighborhood for care partners. So there were 12 participants in the project from a combination of urban, suburban, and semi-rural areas, all in the Ottawa-Gatineau region. These participants were caring for someone with dementia at home, and all of them were living with the person for whom they were providing care. Four of the 12 participants were caring for a parent, and the other eight were caring for a partner. And the care partners ranged in age from 52 to 81 years old, 
than the people with dementia ranged in age from 63 to 87 years old and represented different stages and types of dementia. Three of the 12 participants identified as men and the other nine as women. In terms of methods, I conducted at least three separate interviews with each participant using three distinct data collection methods. The first interview consisted of creating a social network map, which is a document drawn with markers and papers on which the participant mapped out the people with whom they interacted or communicated in a typical week, for example, friends, family, neighbors, service providers, etc. And this elicited discussions about how the participants were being supported and gave a portrait of their networks and communities. In the slide that you're currently looking at, um, I took a photo of an example of a social network map where someone put um, themselves in the center, all the people that are important in their lives around, and this person even created a few little hearts for the people that seemed to matter the most or who were giving the most support. So just to go back to the rest of the methods, um, the second interview consisted of a walk in the participants' neighborhood on a route of their choosing. The walks ranged in duration from 30 to 90 minutes, and the locations varied from snowy country paths to residential or urban streets. These mobile interviews complemented the network maps by immersing me in the local dynamic environment of the participant and giving me a close-up view of their experience of this local environment. For those who had limited mobility, we conducted a driving interview instead. And finally, during the final interview, the participant and I looked at and discussed photographs taken by the participant. I had loaned each participant a camera and instructed them to take 10 to 15 photos of meaningful places or objects. These images were quite varied, ranging from nature trails to parking lots, shopping centers, swimming pools, and you will see some of these photos as we go through the PowerPoint that I'm presenting today. Um, these photographs added depth to the portrait of the participants' everyday lives and gave in further information about the significance of the places and objects in their lives. So I've divided, um, I've divided the findings into three main groups, relationships, places, and everyday practices. Another way of saying this would be people, places, practices. So who are the care partners um, uh, in, relation, in relationship with and what does this mean for dementia-friendly communities? What places are they going to and why? And what strategies or practices are they employing in their day-to-day -day lives? So to begin with family and friends, um, what participants uh, told me about family and friends is quite divided. In other words, there's, there's good news and bad news. In the past, we've tended to think about dementia as leading to a sort of quote-unquote social death and that care partners experience this as well by, by proxy. Yet participants told me that while some aspects of their social sphere shrunk, others expanded. We can think of it, therefore, more as an in-and-out movement of expansion and shrinking rather than simply a shrinking. Participants talked about support coming from unexpected sources, often from people who weren't close before, so people who they may have met in groups or people formerly on the periphery of their lives, such as hairdressers, contractors, business clerks, neighbors, etc. As Sylvia, a 66-year-old carer to her husband, said, and you can see the quote 
um, in the slide, sometimes it's surprising who is supportive and who isn't. Yet although they received um, unexpected support, this also means that many formerly expected sources of support didn't always come through. Many participants talked about the discomfort certain friends or family members um, seemed to experience, which led to a withdrawal of closeness. Many talked about dealing with stigma on a regular basis, as well as the need to be constantly sensitizing others and protecting the person with dementia from judgment. Sylvia also stated, you have to do a little bit of advanced sensitization in talking about her interactions with others. Being confronted with stigma and withdrawal of certain sources of support um, made many participants upset as they felt that they needed the support of those long-standing friends or close family members. Many also expressed wanting friendship encounters that took them out of their caregiving role and helped them focus their attention elsewhere. To turn now to neighbors and strangers, we found that neighbors played a very important role in the lives of people with dementia and their care partners. Neighbors were often referred to as sources of latent support, meaning that participants took comfort in knowing they could call upon a neighbor if needed, but most of the time they didn't actually need to act on that. But just knowing they could if they needed to was reassuring. Um, However, the context of dementia meant that they did find themselves having to call upon neighbors more often than before, and sometimes neighbors played a role of providing explicit support rather than latent. So, for example, being an extra set of eyes or ears, um, one participant explained that her neighbor had to call the police a couple of times when her mother was wandering. Or sometimes neighbor, neighbors played the role of um, being a person for social contact, like chatting through the fence or providing help with certain tasks, like taking out the garbage. As Jack, um, a 59-year-old carer to his wife, stated, they're very nice. They're always asking if there are any problems. They keep an eye, and they report to me, too. Having relationships with neighbors did not seem to be a function of how long someone had lived in a certain area. Some who had lived in the same location for years said that their neighborhood had changed and the relationships were no longer quite the same, whereas others had recently moved to an area and had managed to meet people quickly. Similarly, living in an urban, suburban, or semi-rural area didn't necessarily determine the success of those neighborly relations either, even though many who had moved to a smaller town cited community as an important part of that decision. In addition to neighbors, participants talked about the important role of quote-unquote strangers, and by this I mean random people in the environment who aren't acquaintances beforehand, and often just a wave to someone on the street was enough to help a carer still feel part of the world and less isolated. Some also talked to strangers more often out of necessity when on outings with the person with dementia. For example, one participant went on a lot of walks with her mother who had quite advanced dementia, and the mother would often hug people on the street. And this required the, the, the care to mediate those interactions, and so it pushed her into situations of increased interactions with strangers that she wouldn't have had otherwise. To turn now to business owners and service providers, um, one of the most interesting findings, in my opinion, relates to care partners' choice and use of businesses and services. While we may assume that people would choose to buy groceries at the closest store or in the most convenient location, 
Often the choice of grocery, pharmacy, hairdresser, bank, dry cleaner, etc., was based on relationship. Um, were the workers in those places understanding and helpful? Did they create an environment that was non-stigmatizing? These criteria were at the heart of, of their choices. And in the words of Maureen, a 54-year-old carer to her mother, and in the words of Jack, they say, well, the grocery store we tend to stick to is the one store because they know mom, but occasionally we'll go to the others. Or I go in there and I check mail and whatnot, and they're always speaking to her, and when she comes in, they'll, they'll make us feel comfortable. Sometimes these business owners or clerks that the diet are people the diet had known for a long time, so there was familiarity due to history, but other times it was simply that they felt welcomed and comfortable. For example, Maureen, whose mother likes to hug strangers while going on walks, finds it challenging to bring her mother shopping because she also hugs people in stores. She therefore wants to take her mother shopping in a place where the staff are sensitized and where the social environment is non-stigmatizing. Um, we can see in this photo a picture of Farm Boy, which is a store in the Ottawa area, and many people mention that store as a place where they felt um, that the staff were sensitized. The participants also mentioned secondary reasons regarding the choice of business. These included convenience of location, accessibility, including light and sound, or in other words, seeking out places that weren't too bright or too loud, um, wanting to support local businesses, wanting to run into others and have social contact, or simply familiarity with the layout of the store. Those were all things that they also considered helpful. So another interesting finding regarding relationship concerned the important role that animals play in facilitating social contact. In the words of Deborah, a 54-year-old carer to her mother, a dog is like a way to introduce yourself. Whether or not someone actually owns the dog or simply encounters the dog on the street, the dog offers an excuse to talk. They provide an entry point into social contact, which in turn helps care partners break isolation and retain a sense of social citizenship. Whereas it's usually awkward to talk to someone who's walking down the street or sitting in a park bench without a dog, the animal justifies hellos, waves, smiles, comments, for those who also own those animals, um, they offer a companionship, relaxation, incentive to get outside, etc. Um, some colleagues that I've worked with in the UK are currently testing a dog walking intervention, and it seems that zoo therapy in general is gaining in popularity. So I'm going to turn now to the second batch of themes which relate to the concept of place. Um, as we will see in the following themes, place is still very much linked to relationship. And in fact, relationship and connection seem to be a driving force behind people's decisions about where to live. Discussions about home were very much tied to people's feelings about the community in which their home was situated. Some had recently moved for that very reason, because they were seeking a more cohesive sense of community. As Jack, who had moved a few years previously to a small town, expressed, well, but like I say, the people around here, I think it's the best thing I've ever done, deciding to move down here, preparing for our retirement. Many expressed a desire to live in a safe, peaceful, comfortable community, and they determined whether those criteria were successfully met or not met um, 
based on the relationships they felt they had or didn't have with the people in that community. So in other words, the quality of relationship was what seemed to shape participants' perceptions about their community. Um, Jack, um, who I just mentioned, is in a financially precarious position and has to work night shifts at the local grocery store in order to make ends meet. And a few times a week, his next-door neighbor comes to check on his wife at night to make sure everything's okay while he's doing his night shift. And in this instance, financial precarity also leads to more reliance on neighbors and something I'll come back to briefly in a few minutes. Participants' comments about community are just to keep in mind that homes don't exist in a vacuum. They're always part of a larger context in which they're situated. And I'll come back to this in my recommendations, but it's important that we keep in mind this constant dynamic interaction between home and the social environment surrounding the home. Another important link between place and relationship can be found in the concept of third places. So third places refer to places that are public and ideally accessible by anyone. In other words, they are not home spaces, not workspaces, but community spaces where people can hang out, like coffee shops, libraries, or community centers. And I, I really can't emphasize enough how important these third places are in the lives of care partners of people with dementia. During the interviews, I, I didn't begin by asking any specific questions about third places, but in creating those social network maps and going on walks with participants, everyone kept talking to me about the importance of Tim Hortons in their lives, um, or the cafe down the street, or the local library, or the general store in the village that also acted as a post office and a cafe. Um, you can see in this photo, actually, um, a small picture of um, a general store in one of the small towns. But these were the places that people went to regularly that were part of a weekly routine and therefore places where they had established a history and where they were known. So the fact of being regulars or of being known meant that there were social links in those environments. Um, and it also meant that they were, for the most part, non-stigmatizing environments. So they offered a place to go on outings and they were environments that were welcoming, where they could go with the person with dementia, where they could both relax, be out in the world, be together, see people. So they were, in essence, vital points of social and relational contact. In the words of Jack and also Tina, who's a 72-year-old carer to her husband, um, every Tuesday morning we go for breakfast, and she enjoys that. The people around us know, know her and try to get to talk and everything. And see, this is the Tim Hortons where I maybe get to bring him. That makes his day. And to turn now to the natural environment, um, it wasn't only places in the built environment that were important to the participants, but the natural environment as well. We can read in these two quotes how fulfilling it was for some of the participants to be in nature. These are quotes from Tina, um, as well as Doug, a 63-year-old carer to his wife. And the sky, you know, the open sky, this is so nice because we can see so much sky all the time and the clouds, the changing of the clouds, it's energy. I'm a nature person, and just to have a backyard like this where there's nobody, I enjoy that very much, so it's important to me to have nature around. Access to nature was discussed as a source of enjoyment and calm, both for the care partner and the person with dementia. 
And this contact with nature took on many forms. It could be gardening, sitting outside, walking on trails, going to parks, looking at animals. It could be at home or outside the home. Some participants talked about their gardens as being extensions of the home. And interactions with nature also facilitated interactions between the care partner and the person with dementia. So it was something they could still do together and still enjoy together. And in this sense, we see that even that the natural environment is linked to relationship because it facilitates connection. One of the most um, unexpected findings regarding place concerned the role of favorite places in facilitating restorative experiences. Much like the concept of third places, I didn't set out by um, interrogating the concept of favorite places. But I kept hearing stories about people's favorite spots, so whether it be a bench, a building, a trail, or a park. So for example, in the words of Sylvia and Albert, who's a 68-year-old carriage's partner, they say, well, we often walk through the park and it's a place that it's always calming. It's just a nice place to be. And if we're going for a walk, we invariably start there because it's not city in a way. Or um, Albert saying, it's, it's restful. It's very, very peaceful. It's the most peaceful place I find in the city, particularly when looking at the building and enjoying it fills me with, well, it takes everything out of my head because I'm observing the various architectural features. And he's referring in that quote to a building that he likes. Tina, who lived on a semi-rural property, even talked about how she looked out the window of her home and observed her, observing her favorite tree brought her a sense of calm. And this is the tree we see in this um, photo in the slide. She also explained that she um, purposefully would go to a specific shopping mall because she liked to sit at a certain bench and look up at a pattern of lights that she found peaceful. After hearing numerous such stories, I started to realize that favorite places, whether inside or outside the home, whether in the natural environment or the built environment, can facilitate relaxation, restoration, and even respite. I wrote a paper on this topic, and it was recently published in the International Journal of Care and Caring, and you can see the full reference on the next slide. In this paper, I rethink the notion of respite based on the idea of favorite places. Normally, we conceptualize care respite as simply a service that can temporarily relieve a carer from her duties and hence provide relief. But what if a feeling of restoration could be achieved in the context of a carer's daily routine facilitated by favorite places or objects? I also wrote a paper on the topic of walks um, as this also arose as a vital element in the routine of care partners and people with dementia. Um, here you can see the reference to that paper. And for most participants, walks, whether alone or with the person with dementia, were an integral part of their daily routine. So as Maureen stated, well, mom loves to go inside. She loves to go on rides. She loves to go out, period, all around. She needs to go outside, so we've been doing this walk through all seasons, all types of weather. So as participants started to talk to me about the importance of walks, I began to explore why they were so meaningful. What did they accomplish? Why was everyone going on walks? What I concluded was that walks serve different functions at different moments. They are a multifaceted strategy for coping with many aspects of daily life. 
But there is, again, a common thread of relationship because I realize that walks facilitate connections with the person with dementia, with the social environment, with the natural environment, and with the self. So walks were also moments when the care partner and person with dementia could connect, where they could do an activity together and be relating in some way. Care partners described walks as releases of tension, or one care partner called it taking the lid off the pot. In moments when the person with dementia was in high stress or distress, walks offered an opportunity to switch gears and release some of that tension, hence helping to create a more calm and like more common connection in the relationship. Walks also facilitated social connections in some of the ways I've previously described, like smiling or waving at people, saying hello to dog owners, seeing others in their routines, such as um, school children getting on or off the school bus. And these interactions also helped care partners retain a sense of social citizenship and hence a sense of identity. In other words, the fact of being out in the world, of seeing others and being seen, validated their sense of self beyond simply their caregiving role. Um, and if they were walking on their own for exercise or relaxation purposes, this also helped validate their need for self-care. Um, so to turn now to the, the, um, the concept of weather, um, this study was conducted in a part of Canada that gets a significant amount of snow and other challenging weather for at least half the year. So I was curious to know if bad weather changed people's patterns in their neighborhoods. And the answer for these participants was somewhat, but not substantially. But I should note that most of the participants in this study were quite able-bodied, and although some had chronic illnesses of their own, all of them had quite high mobility. So for them, the weather might sometimes change their route or their destination, but it didn't stop them from going out entirely. They expressed that outings certainly became more difficult and that it often meant fewer or shorter outings, but that they still made efforts to go out regularly. For example, in the words of Maureen, she says, well, for certain, if, it, if weather was a consideration, we would not take this route. This is a longer route, so we would just go on a little short one, maybe around the school and back, or to the mailbox and back. It's important to emphasize that this is likely not applicable to very rural settings. These participants were living in areas where there was still plowing service and where at least main roads were maintained. Along the same lines, participants explained that they were partially but not fully held back by concerns about risk. Um, we live um, in a kind of risk society, especially when it comes to dementia. There's a lot of resistance from family members and practitioners to allowing people with dementia independence for fear of risk. Some participants in the study were concerned that um, about the person with dementia um, wandering, driving, or getting lost, and they tried to mitigate those risks, yet they also expressed a simultaneous desire to maintain the autonomy of the person with dementia for as long as possible, and therefore made an effort to push past their fears. So if we see on the next slide, we have a quote um, from Albert, who said about his partner, um, 
he has to keep doing what he can do as long as he has and he doesn't take the if he doesn't take the bracelet off so if anything happens will he'll find where he's going or somebody will help jack also said that he and his wife felt safe in their community and that helped diminish their fears of risk so he says um and what's really funny about small communities like this we'll go outside sometimes we'll go out for a walk and a lot of people will turn around and say you don't even lock your doors and no, we don't have to lock our doors. So the desire to remain, um, you know, active in the world and the desire to retain a sense of personal identity as well as a sense of social citizenship appears to be stronger and more powerful than fears about risk. And in the paper on walks, I conceptualize walks and outings despite bad weather, despite fears of risk as um, daily forms of resistance. Okay, I'm going to turn now to um, future research directions because one of the limitations in my study was the lack of diversity in the sample. And I think it is extremely necessary to continue exploring these same questions, but with people who also face stigmatization and discrimination due to bar marginalized identities, whether it be people belonging to racialized communities, linguistic minority communities, or identifying as LGBTQ, or having different forms of disability. Marginalization can change people's experiences of their space and their environment, and I think that these intersecting oppressions, so for example, ageism combined with ableism combined with homophobia or transphobia, should be explored when considering what dementia-friendly communities should look like. So who is entitled own or take up public space, um, who is targeted in public spaces, who is invisible in public spaces, where do we feel safe? For example, people who identify as women may feel unsafe walking on certain streets at certain times of day, or people who identify as transgender may not want to go to their local grocery store because they were once misgendered there. We want to create dementia-friendly communities that are safe and inclusive for everyone. Um, one of my new research directions is looking at the lived experiences of transgender older adults with dementia and their support networks. And with my colleague Alexandre Baril, who's a specialist in transgender studies, we were recently awarded a Shirk Insight grant to conduct empirical work on this topic. I'm mentioning all this before arriving at my recommendations because I think these considerations need to be part of recommendations even if I did not address these topics in the current study. So I will turn now to recommendations regarding what would a dementia-friendly community look like from a care partner perspective? What would facilitate carers' experiences of caring for someone with dementia at home and in the community? So the following are some concrete suggestions that I believe should be included in the shaping of any dementia-friendly community strategy. These are recommendations applicable to urban, suburban, or semi-rural settings. And I'm aware that very rural settings have specific needs and that there are pockets of people working on these topics, like my co-investigator, Elaine Wersma, who's in Thunder Bay. I've divided these recommendations into 12 main points, beginning with walks. Care partners and people with dementia should be supported in their walking activities. Things that could help support walking include having sidewalks on most neighborhood streets 
and that sounds obvious, but in some of the neighborhoods in which I walked with participants, there were no sidewalks. Um, plowing and salting and clearing streets and sidewalks, maintaining small places in each neighborhood to walk to, even if that means just a community mailbox, for example. Um, regarding businesses, there is a movement in dementia-friendly community strategies towards training and sensitizing businesses. And this certainly seems to match with what care partners in the study were needing. They were needing people that are trained and sensitized about dementia in order to create non-stigmatizing environments. The social environment of a store should be welcoming and actively helpful. The built environment of a store should be designed to reduce aggressors, such as harsh lighting or too much noise. Um, regarding third places, existing third places should be maintained and ideally more should be created. These places facilitate social relationships and help care partners and people with dementia be out in the world in non-stigmatizing environments. And this includes cafes, potentially special dementia cafes, libraries, general stores, post offices, etc. This is especially important in semi-rural areas in which we sometimes see local businesses shutting down. Um, one of the participants in my study was quite upset when the local library in her town closed and she now had to drive quite a few minutes to the next town in order to access that public space. Um, encouraging favorite places. Care partners could be encouraged and supported to seek out and enjoy their favorite places as regularly as possible with the hope that these places can facilitate um, a sense of restoration. Sometimes getting to these places can only happen with the help of other forms of respite, like someone coming to the house to stay with the person with dementia. But at other times, connecting with a favorite place, like the tree outside the window, can occur in the middle of everyday routines, even if those are care routines. Um, regarding the design of public places, and I say this with a caveat that I am not at all a design specialist, but if we want to encourage and facilitate social contact in public spaces, the design of those spaces should reflect that goal. One way to achieve this could be through more benches, more public squares, more public meeting points. Um, this can also help facilitate neighbor-to-neighbor -neighbor connections. Regarding universal design, um, outside and inside spaces and places should be designed with principles of universal access in mind. So universal design aims to provide places that are accessible to everyone, not only people with disabilities. What is helpful for people with dementia is probably also helpful for people with a range of other cognitive, intellectual, and physical disabilities, or simply parents with strollers or people with a temporary reduction in mobility. Um, to turn to the next batch of recommendations um, regarding animals, it could be interesting to experiment with community-based zoo therapy programs. So it would be great if such programs could be integrated into a part of public life and be visible in our communities. Regarding weather, um, when talking about dementia-friendly communities in a Canadian context, certainly discussions about weather are inevitable and necessary. There need to be discussions about how to mitigate the negative effects of bad weather to support people in getting out of the house even during difficult winter months. 
Um, regarding identity, um, it is important to keep supporting care partners in their quest to maintain their own interests, activities, hobbies, work lives, and identities. In my opinion, this comes from a number of structural changes, like more resources and supportive policies, including financial policies for carers. I realize this sounds idealistic in an era of resource retrenchment, but I think it's nonetheless important to state that care partners need significantly more support than they are currently receiving, both for themselves and the person with dementia. Um, as I briefly mentioned at the beginning, we, I believe we need to distinguish between neighborhood and community. It's important to work on both fronts, improving neighborhood experiences, yet also supporting community growth. Many of the participants receive support from people who are far away, sometimes people in another country. They Skyped and emailed with friends and family. They were on online forums that included people from around the world. And these were integral parts of their sense of community. So when we talk about dementia-friendly communities, it's important to keep in mind all the various facets of what community means. Um, regarding stigma, there is ongoing stigma attached to dementia, and therefore, by extension, the care partners of people with dementia. Significant work is being done to counter this by the Alzheimer's Society, by practitioners, by researchers, by people whose lives are affected by dementia. Um, we must definitely continue that vital work, and when we imagine what dementia-friendly communities should look like, we must keep in mind that people's experiences of their community is very much influenced and shaped by experiences of discrimination or non-discrimination. And on that note, my final recommendation is about the need for ongoing sensitization, knowledge building, and activism regarding people with dementia who also experience other forms of marginalization. Like how does poverty affect one's experiences of community or not being able to communicate in one's language or not being read as belonging to a binary gender category? I would encourage further research intervention and activism regarding all of those topics. Thank you so much for the opportunity to share this work with you. I will end there and open for discussion, and I'll be very happy to take your questions. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Dr. Silverman. You had some um, wonderful uh, insights, and, and I love hearing from uh, people with lived experience and their quotes and their perspectives. It's, um, it's really encouraging that um, your research and others are following suit with that. That's wonderful. Um, so, um, as Dr. Silverman said, uh, we're able to uh, field some questions uh, for the remaining time we have together today. There are two ways in which you can ask a question. Uh, you can ask over the phone and talk to uh, Dr. Silverman directly, and you can do so by pressing star 7 on your individual line so that you're no longer on mute. Um, uh, I would note that only those interested in asking a question that you want to meet your line, otherwise it'll get pretty noisy. Um, or two, uh, you can type your question into the chat pod. And I do want to remind you that um, only um, I can see your questions, not your fellow participants. So um, in, in case that's important to you, I um, wanted to let you know. Uh, I also wanted to advise that, as per usual, I will be posting um, some uh, poll questions uh, during our Q&A portion, and I just um, ask you all or encourage you all to answer each question. I believe there's about six of them or so, and your answers are anonymous, but they do help us tailor future webinar meetings or webinar events, so um, please take part if you're able and willing. 
Okay, so first questions posted up there, and I'm going to get to the first question for Dr. Silverman, and that is, um, what programs um, are you familiar with that involve persons living with dementia or and or the elderly, specifically with respect to interacting with animals? Oh, that's a good question. Um, yeah, unfortunately, I... <laughs> I don't have good information on that in a Canadian context. Um, I haven't, um, and maybe someone from the Alzheimer's Society would have more awareness on this specific topic than, than I do. Um, what I was referring to was a program that um, some colleagues in the UK were running as a kind of pilot project intervention as part of their Dementia Neighborhoods research where they were um, specifically doing a kind of dog walking or dog interaction program with people with dementia and their carers to um, to see what impact that would have. So I'm aware of that, um, that kind of research piece happening, but in terms of whether there are specific programs to that effect going on in various parts of our country, um, I actually don't know the answer, and it would be interesting to find out. And I would imagine that there probably are, but... Um, but I, I'm unfortunately not able to answer specifics. That's okay. Um, I might uh, I might just see if my colleagues um, from the Alzheimer's Society of Canada, who I usually on the line to see if they're available to, if they have any um, insight into that as well. I'll give them a moment, and uh, maybe we can uh, circle back to them in a second with respect to that. Um, Julian, you want me to jump on, in is Mary. Oh, oh, yes, please do. Hi, so it's Mary Schultz calling from the Alzheimer's Society of Canada. I agree with Marjorie. To our knowledge, there aren't a lot of programs that we're aware of, so we would love to hear if people on the line are aware of some animal programs, animals. I'm not calling them therapy because uh, sort of have an aversion to that, but um, I have certainly heard of UK-based um, programs where the issue is, is more so around the fact that uh, a lot of older people with dementia or not are no longer in a position to own an animal, mm -hmm. uh, a pet, and so there is a matching program that has been developed where people who are perhaps still in the workforce looking for someone to take care of their, let's say, their dog, uh, there is a, a system set up where a person with dementia and a carer can uh, help take care of a dog, have the benefits of that companionship and so on, perhaps remember when they owned a dog themselves and of course the person who's working has some uh, support so some interesting creative ways of keeping um, companion animals in the lives of people with dementia but I have a colleague here who also is aware I think of, uh, so, of yeah, the program. The, um, the Alzheimer's Society of Toronto actually has uh, a program that we do sometimes uh, just based on availability where uh, um, caregivers can bring in their pets so we have um, pets Day, or sometimes we also have uh, an ongoing horse therapy program that we partner with the Woodbine Racetracks where people with dementia and the care caregivers can go and interact. And it's basically grooming and interacting with uh, the horses who have been trained in, uh, uh, to interact with people with dementia. So those are uh, some that are out, uh, ongoing right now and the other study in Toronto. Wonderful. Thank you for that contribution. Thanks, Mary, as well. Um, also, and Mary, I'm going to I'm going to um, ask you to sort of stay on the line because another question that was uh, presented um, was also about the impact um, of music on those that have a dementia. And Dr. Silverman, have you had an opportunity to investigate that a little bit further, or is that something you might be looking at in the future? 
Um, I have not investigated that in my own research, but I am aware that um, even in Canada, I know even the Alzheimer's Society here in Ottawa has um, music programs and that those are becoming more and more common um, regarding, um, you know, going, not only going to orchestra concerts, let's say, but actively um, performing music, listening to music, being in choirs, singing, um, using instruments, um, there are definitely a lot of um, a lot of benefits that just people who have spoken to me about it, but I don't have any um, research regarding that. Okay. Um, we're going to sort of shift gears here, and uh, one person is asking whether this project, particularly the recommendations that come from it, will um, be shared with government policymakers. Mm, that's a good question. Um, I hope so. Um, I hope that's the case. I think the the intention of the um, certainly the intention of the work is to try to create change. And um, you know, we're building in academia, we're building knowledge, but we also want that knowledge disseminated. And um, I'm going to be working over the next few months on a publication that will kind of pull together all the recommendations that I just mentioned. And um, I will try to disseminate that as widely as possible and touching as well um, on the policy sector and going going beyond simply the um, academic sector. Wonderful. Thank you for that. Um, okay, so we're going to keep going here. Uh, a question with respect to approaching a care partner. So she asks, how would you approach a care partner about themselves suffering from burnout and needing additional help when they don't think that they need it? Oh, goodness. Um, that is, that's probably a really common thing. Well, certainly in my work with carers over the years, um, a lot of people don't quite realize till quite far along that, that they're in positions of care that are having a lot of impacts on their lives and that go above and beyond our um, kind of quote-unquote normal relationships with family members or friends. So often people don't self-identify with the term care or caregiver. So um, a bit of um, resistance to getting help can, is quite common. And maybe it just, I guess it depends sort of Who's approaching? Is it a practitioner? Is it a friend? Is it just someone um, on the periphery? But I would say to go at it in a way that's um, maybe some starting with some gentle observations. Like I've noticed that um, um, that you do seem quite stressed lately, or that you haven't been sleeping, or that you don't seem to be eating as much as you should be, or um, just making a few observations about what you're noticing in their life, and um, maybe. Um, asking who in their life has been supporting them, um, suggesting some support, um, maybe gently mentioning that there are some services available that could help them. And even if they don't sort of take up those suggestions on a, in a first time, um, it's possible that down the road um, they might be receptive at the point where they, they realize they need it. Thank you. Okay, so again, sort of switching gears, and this is a long one, so hang in there with me here. Um, so question regarding distinguishing between age-friendly and dementia-friendly initiatives. Mm -hmm. So given that the recommendation is to consider elements of universal design in dementia-friendly, 
considerations for physical environment, how can one engage communities that are already becoming age-friendly to also consider mm-hmm. dementia-friendly design? In some places, I've experienced these responses from groups that are already working to become age-friendly mm-hmm. um, who have said that they don't need to consider dementia, too, because they're already looking at age-friendly considerations that are, quote, good enough. Mm, that's interesting. Yeah, and of course there's there's a lot of overlap. Um and I mean ideally all these initiatives should be, you know, in dialogue with one another. And one way to perhaps facilitate that dialogue is at least, you know, in age-friendly initiatives to have um people with dementia or their care partners and their care partners, ideally a few people as consultants who can actually speak to lived experience or um, can can bring in the dimension of just ensuring that what is being put forward as um, age-friendly policies or design or initiatives also ensure that they take into consideration the particularities of having a cognitive disability and um often those considerations are the same like you know we we all want sidewalks that are easy to get onto and uh probably for most people having stores that are less noisy or with bright lighting um would help but um it's important to just you know ensure that the the dimension of cognitive disability is really brought forward in those discussions and 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 highlighted and taken into consideration in age-friendly um, initiatives. Thank you for that. I am just going to circle back to the question with respect to um, programs involving animals, and I just want to mention that we've had a participant on the line who just wanted to mention that um, that their particular long-term care home, uh, where this individual is from, they frequently have their OSPCA, local OSCs, OSPCA come in um, mm. and that they also welcome all visitors to bring in um, any pets when they visit and they also mm-hmm. have two live-in dogs that are in the building as well. So just um, a fantastic little uh, program that they're offering at mm. their particular long-term care home. So that's really interesting. And that's a really great example of how, you know, there's probably so many of these small-scale initiatives across the country in various pockets, little at different institutions or communities, and that's, that's yeah, really nice to hear about. Um, I am going to invite um, one of our colleagues from the Alzheimer's Society of Canada uh, is on the line as well, and, and they wanted to mention something. I'm just going to ask that mm-hmm. um, you be sure to because uh, you were a little bit, um, all of you, I think you're in a, probably in a boardroom, and so it, it gets a little bit quieter, so if you can just be mindful of that. Thank you. Hi, uh, my name is Nushin. I'm from Alzheimer's Society of Toronto here, and I'm one of the educators here. I just wanted to mention, um, or actually it's a concern I have uh, also as a, uh, from a lived experience of a family caregiver, uh, when you were talking about uh, pet therapy, uh, dogs um, uh, mediating the interaction social and increasing the social interaction, uh, we all know that Canada is a multicultural country, uh, more so Ontario, and many people, older generations from different cultures, are not used to be living with pets, especially dogs. And they are very afraid, and um, this emotion becomes intensified when somebody has dementia. Mm -hmm. And in fact, um, 
going back to my own lived experience as a daughter of someone with dementia, that prevented uh, my mother going for walks in the neighborhood mm. because other people were there walking their dogs, and that actually kept her at home. So I just wanted to make a suggestion um, when thinking about pet therapy. Maybe we can think about other pets than dogs, maybe bird therapy that mm -hmm. is more um, cultural-friendly or maybe something similar because sometimes dogs actually prevent different cultures from being part of the community because of their past trauma, maybe many Holocaust survivors, dogs remind them of their past traumas or because of, the, uh, because of not being used to or being mm -hmm. used to dogs inside um, their house. That's all. Thank you so much. That's a wonderful suggestion that I think really highlights um, what I was mentioning about the need for further research that really takes into consideration um, multiple aspects of kind of intersections of multiple aspects of people's identity and and I think that's that's really a lovely example um, and you're absolutely right that it's it's certainly you know the suggestions I'm making around animals are certainly not for everyone and um, for some people this seems to be a kind of entry point into social interaction and for others it would be a barrier or a blocking point like you're saying so I think the the key is kind of about finding what are for each person these entry points into the social interaction because that is really the the key piece is ways to connect with people when when we're out in the world or ways to to um to get out in the first place yeah thank you thank you all right i'm going to uh keep going with the questions here we have a few more minutes remaining um so another question was with respect to this, your research project, Dr. Silverman, and whether any participants uh, participated in a day program. And uh, she mentions that um, in her experience with a family member, um, that they had a very positive um, experience with that day program at a certain point of the disease progression, if you will, and wondered whether or not that those sorts of day programs are included in your research. Um, thank you for that question. Um, I didn't specifically look at uh, day programs, but certainly um, when people were talking to me about what services they're using and what businesses they're using and who they're relying on for support, yes, some of the um, the people with dementia were attending uh, day programs, and those were um, helpful, and they felt um, uh, like uh, to some of the care partners, those programs and the facilitators of those programs did feel like sources of support. So they were kind of part of the larger entourage of support, um, even though I didn't, you know, delve into that topic uh, specifically. It, it did come up in this context of, of larger support. So, yes, there's certainly um, a very helpful contribution to the lives of care partners and people with dementia who are um, still um, living at home. Thank you. Uh, this is, hello? you know, uh, yes, hello? Uh, yes, um, I was just at a meeting, uh, town hall, with the Honorable Philomena Tazzy, the Minister of Seniors, uh, before this uh, session, and I think uh, you should be sending your research to her. She's interested in getting anything like that about making uh, communities friendlier for seniors and people with cognitive issues. So, I Thank think you. you <laughs> 
Wonderful. Thank you so much. You're welcome. And I'm just going to go back to, it's more of a comment, but I think that this is a nice place to end. And, and Mary, um, I'll pick your brain too, Mary Schultz, who is uh, one of the directors of education, or the director of education at Alzheimer's Society Canada as well. Um, and that was your note, um, Dr. Silverman, about, um, you know, awareness and um, sensitivity um, and so on. And um, so there was a comment provided by a participant here that talks about the education uh, about dementia being critical and um, that, you know, wanting to see the Alzheimer's Society um, uh, reach out a little bit more perhaps um, to provide that sort of education, whether it be, you know, getting links on municipal websites, um, being someone else also had commented um, earlier on and registration about uh, the Alzheimer's Society getting out to some, you know, doing info booths or what have you, web, um, you know, public spaces, malls, libraries, mm -hmm. Um, that sort of thing, even in um, the school system. Um, I know, you know, I can speak to uh, my work when I was at the Alzheimer's Society doing an as a public educator. Um, we did go to schools, certainly, but, of course, we had to wait to be invited, or we made it available, but still had to wait to be invited. Um, but just wondering about, you know, if, if your thoughts were along those lines of, of um, helping to increase that awareness piece and, and um you know, for the general public as much as for those that are, are dealing with the diagnosis and their care partners to increase mm -hmm. that, you know, sensitivity just as a community in, its, in and of itself. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, yes, absolutely. And I think, you know, from what I've heard about some of the more grassroots initiatives around dementia-friendly communities that are happening in, in lots of different provinces, that is part of their objectives as well as, like, sensitizing as a community. And, um, you know, I'm thinking of... Um, what I have heard, I'm not an expert on, but what I have heard about um, the program in Ontario and in Bob Cajun with the Blue Umbrella program, you know, having this kind of sticker in the in the window of a business, it, like an indicator of sensitization, um, those kind of public symbols are interesting to think about, too, how we um, kind of, as a community, can create a kind of more public awareness around that. So I, I definitely agree with, with your comment, Jillian. Wonderful. So I am cautious of the time. It's 101 officially, so um, I'm, I'm afraid I'm going to have to end it there. I recognize that we weren't able to get to everybody's questions, so my apologies for that. Um, there's been lots of great interaction, though, and I am very grateful to all of you for that participation, so thank you. Um, thank you also, of course, to Dr. Marjorie Silverman. It was just a pleasure to hear from you today and for you to share your insights and, and um, research with us. It's, um, it's been lovely to have you. Thank you so much. My pleasure. You're welcome. Um, I do want to make a quick note before you all uh, head out, and that is just to plug our next webinar event, which will be in May, Thursday, May 16th. And that's going to feature uh, Ms. Um, Ms. Stephanie Friel, and she is a consultant in the Department of Mental Health and Substance Abuse at the World Health Organization. She's based in the Netherlands, um, and we're going to be talking about human rights and dementia. So the registration for that event will be opening this week. If you're a Brain Exchange member, uh, keep an eye on your inbox, and you should receive um, an email directly in there. And if you aren't, then have a look at the events under the upcoming events sections on our website. So um, I just wanted to make a quick little plug for that. Um, again, Dr. Silverman, thank you so much for your time today. And to everyone, um, have a wonderful uh, week, and we'll see you or talk to you in a few more weeks. Thanks all. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you.